I don't think the system works. How would you have it work? We need a system where the politicians sit down and discuss the problem. Agree what's in the best interest of all the people, and then do it. That's exactly what we do. The, the trouble is that people don't always agree. Well, then they should be made to. By whom? Who's going to make them? I don't know. Someone. You? Of course not me. But someone. Someone wise. Sounds an awful lot like a dictatorship to me. Well, if it works. So, Trent, what have you been eating lately? Hi, Parth. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. You're looking well. Not as well as you. Thanks. Um, what I eat wasn't very notable. Um, what'd you have? No, no, Trent. You have to tell me what That's you That's not allowed? Trent, I've made you eat food just before recording an episode because you hadn't eaten that d- d- the day of, so... Because, because this is part of the show? The, it's an it's integral in the part of the show. Our show is partially about food. Remember when I briefly took a stand and tried to make this section about the movie we, you watched most recently, and then the fans spoke, and they said that's what they come for? And I spoke, yeah. but you care more about the fans, that's fine. Yeah, but, well, if majority ruled and, and, the, and the people spoke, and they said that the section was no bueno, and they wanted the movie podcast to strictly be about movies, but the movie podcast fans want a movie podcast about food, supposedly. Um, I had a smoothie and a rice cake with some peanut butter on it. What about you? Let's talk. Let's expand on on your half. Ugh, you silly little minx. Um, what did I have? I had chickpea tikka masala with rice. Uh, my roommate Chloe Ditloff, friend of the show, friend of the show, go see the Staten Island King of Staten Island episode. Now both the people you live with have been on the show. You guys must have that's a, true a bond now. Yeah, it's really we weren't able to fully connect as friends until we were all on craft services. But now you look across the apartment and you're like, wow, that's a friend of the show right there. Not just a friend, a friend of the show. Yeah, that's an equal. Well, almost equal. Well, they're not hosts of the show. No, no. Though, do I see you and look at you as an equal? That's a... I, I, I say no need no Let's need cut to the intro. Yep. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about Trent. What movies. are we talking about? This is our show. We have a podcast where we talk about the movies each week. We talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week, we're talking about Star Wars Attack of the Clones, Episode 2. We're in the thick of prequel winter, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we yeah. had st- storyboard artist Mark Sexton. Two storyboard artists in a row, if mm-hmm. you're keeping track at home. That's um, three Star Wars storyboard artists at this point. Yes, yes. Um, but next week, or two weeks from now, for our Revenge of the Sith discussion, we'll have someone who isn't a storyboard artist. So That's our, true. the streak will end. Yeah. Uh, but this week, we had a really good interview. Uh, we've made uh, we've alluded to the fact that it's one of our best in recent history. I would say it is our best in a few months. Um, and I love all of our interviews, but this one was particularly juicy. Yeah, it's like in Animal Farm. It's like all animals are created equal, but like different amounts of equal. And that's like yeah. our that's like our our episodes on how much we like them. Um, no, this was a great episode. We talk about how he was juggling Georges. Am I right? Yes. 
We got George Lucas on one hand, George Miller on the other, and in between, like, two to three hours of sleep. And, Partha, I got, like, four hours of sleep last night, and I felt like a terrible, terrible member of society. And so the fact that he was able to do that for months on end and, you know, um, make small talk with George Lucas at, like, 7 a.m. On, like, big movies. It's really incredible. Like, like important movies. And I could barely go to class at 9 a.m. Yeah. No, this is a great episode. A uh, lot of fun stories. We got a Tom Cruise story. And what a Tom Cruise story we get. Hmm? Um, yes. Um, it has to do with the fact that he's short. And so you'll want to see his tuned. nose and his nose. Um, and it's sharp angle, I would say, or it's large volume. And John Woo and maybe some discord between the two. I feel like Mission Impossible 2 finds its way into every interview, no? It does, yeah. And it's such a fraught production that I'm amazed that it gets brought up so much. Also, but this guy has worked on some other crazy stuff. Um, Like Black Panther. He told us about how his child is in the new Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder. He told Potentially. Us she's been shot. Yeah. That she, or uh, she's been filmed, sorry. Parth, shot with a gun? Oh my god. Are you serious? <laughs> Um, okay, so he worked on Black Panther, Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, oh, he told us about Happy Feet, he, um, that was pretty wild. Um, I don't want to release all the goods just yet, but let's just say this is a pretty great episode that you should continue listening to, and come to the end of the episode to, um, you know, listen to us talk. Yeah, there's a particularly fun anecdote towards the very end. And so listen to that maybe it has to do with like a director that he has a chance encounter with and who is carrying around um, a big telephone. And th- that may sound unusual, but you need the context. Let's just say that when we offer you this episode to listen to, we're making you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. And if you don't listen to the episode now, I'd say it'll be it'll, it'll be an apocalypse. Uh-huh. Mm, well done. You like that? I no, thought that about good. that. I thought about that like two weeks ago. Um, like no, that's that pretty good. Gonna love this. I do wordplay. Love it. Um, but yeah, let's let's get into the interview. I'd say, but yeah, stick around to the end because we'll talk just between Parth and I. We'll we'll shoot the shit after the shoot the shit. Cue the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Mark Sexton. He's the storyboard artist behind such films as Babe, Pig in the City, Mission Impossible 2, Mad Max Fury Road, and our film for today, George Lucas's Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Thank you so much for being here today. That's all right. Thank you for asking me. I promise not to babble. <laughs> uh, it's all good. So just to start off, what would you say your relationship with film was at an early age? Well... My relationship with film at an early age was that I didn't have a relationship with film at an early age because I grew up on a small island in the middle of the South Pacific where we had no television and no cinema. And uh, by the time I was 20, I'd literally watched about maybe 30 films in my life, all on all on beta, by the way, for you those who remember what beta, were, uh, beta was. Um, so, yeah, I had no relationship at all as a child. Were any of the first 30 movies you watched, like, really, like, cornerstone movies that, like, stuck with you? Like, did you watch, like, 
Titanic or something and you're like, shit, movies exist? Uh, well, I'm a little bit older than that, so I, I started a little bit earlier than Titanic, thankfully. The first film I actually got to see in the cinema, I lasted five minutes. It was Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, and I ran screaming from the cinema. Um, uh, couldn't couldn't cope with it. I think there was skeleton uh, priests. These priests burst into flames and then turned to skeletons with flaming red eyes and horns, and I just went... Bah! and ran um <laughs> the first whole film that i actually saw in the cinema was empire strikes back uh, whoa oh. it all comes full circle a tie-in to today's episode Ooh. and another and what episode did you, two, another episode too and what did you make of it did you have the context of a new hope nope i'd never seen it um so it was really confusing i had the toys i i, I grew up on this island you know we had a toy store we didn't have um television or cinema but i'd read i'd read the book because i knew that star wars was a thing and i bought all these action figures and stuff like that but i had no idea how it looked or anything like that so um empire strikes back was both a um an exciting discovery and a complete mystery so how do you how did you sort of like move into movies because that's obviously your your whole thing now <laughs> It, um, it, it seems to be largely my thing. Um, I went and did a uh, well. Let's put it this way: um, had to go to school in Adelaide uh, after finishing school on this island because the uh, the island didn't have school um, past year ten. There's a couple more years in um, Australian Australian school system. Had to go and do it in Adelaide. Had an art teacher who didn't like me, who failed me. So I failed art, and so I went, went and did a PhD in genetics um, at Monash University in Melbourne. And at the same time, uh, I discovered that there were such things as uh, Australian comic books. And I thought I should um, go and um, have a shot at um, doing my own comic books, because I quite like the idea of comic books. I discovered them when I was 15. Did that for a few years. Then I got banned. Um, uh, <laughs> How'd that a long story. Um, let's just say that some of the subject matter in the comic book that got me banned was potentially not considered to be kid-friendly, even though the comic was not supposed to be kid-friendly, but however, the authorities in Australia think that comics are kids, and so therefore, blah. Um, so let's put it this way. It had the words, take drugs, kids, it did me no harm. (laughs) delivered with a great deal of irony but anyway you know other powers that be don't understand irony so got banned but the comic book got read by a director in sydney uh, alex proyas who was he had done the crow and he was just um storyboarding and doing pre-production on dark city and he'd just mm-hmm. broken his previous storyboard artist and needed a new one um, and he tended to use comic book artists for his storyboards because they don't know the they don't know cinematic rules, and because um, he seemed to for some reason have liked the comic that I got banned doing, um, I got rung up and asked whether I'd like to come up and storyboard a film, which I said no, thanks very much, I don't want to do that. And then they said, um, oh look, you know, um, look, we'd pay you a thousand dollars a week, and I went, oh, I'm broke. $1,000 a week. Ooh, I could buy a lot of two-minute noodles for that. Yeah, I'll come. So I went and started doing that. And um, that was 20, 
how long? 25 years ago, 26 years ago, and I haven't quite stopped since. Anyway, very long-winded answer. I'm sorry. So were you turned off by the medium of movies, or were you just like, that's not what I feel most comfortable in, like, uh, from from the start? Because you've clearly no, come no, into no, your own. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, movies were awesome as much as anything else. Um, it's all storytelling, you know? Comic books are storytelling, and I like doing comic books. Movies, television, it's all storytelling in one shape or form. I actually just enjoy telling stories. Um, and, you know, storyboarding isn't a massive departure from comic book work, so it was a reasonably natural progression. It's just that I didn't know any cinematic rules. Um, so I just had to learn how to uh, apply those in my storytelling. Um, which took a while and a little bit of education, not from Alex Price, who didn't teach me a damn thing, um, even though it was fun working on his film. Didn't didn't learn anything, um, except that I didn't know how to storyboard. Um, so anyway, film, no, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed film. I just didn't have a habit of watching them, I think, because I've never right. grown up doing it. This, this conversation is not going the way you thought it would. No, no, this is all great. This is all great. So moving forwards just a little bit uh, to the main topic of the day, from not really knowing how to do storyboards, you landed the much-coveted job of storyboarding a Star Wars movie, specifically Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. How did that happen? Long story. I had, uh, but I'll make it short. Um, I had done a few films in the past um, with a particular production manager, a guy called Stephen Jones, and um, uh, and I think I'd, I'd done a film with him called Red Planet. And uh, even though even though um, Red Planet wasn't a great film, I tried to storyboard the hell out of it um, as much as I possibly could. Um, and he must have remembered me. Um, so he then was production manager on episode two when it was shooting in Sydney. And... Um, Nick Gillard, who was the fight coordinator, wanted to storyboard out a, a proposed fight sequence. And I think he just put the call into the production office, is there any storyboard artists in Australia that I can use to do this really quickly? And Stephen Jones went, well, actually, there's this idiot. You could probably use him. So I got a call and asked whether I'd um, uh, come and storyboard some Star Wars stuff for Nick Gillard. And uh, I was in the middle of Mad Max Fury Road at the time. So I was uh, a year into that. So that was in production at like 2001? Oh, no, no, no. We started storyboarding Fury Road in 1999. That's um, amazing. Cool. So, um, <laughs> and finished in 2001. And then it took another 12 years to actually go into production. Long story. Um, very long story. Uh, but uh, so I was doing that. Um, got asked to do the Star Wars stuff. And of course, I'm not going to turn down a Star Wars film. You know, I'd grown up. Um, loving the concept of Star Wars while still not really knowing that much about it, having not seen um, the films more than a couple of times. I love the I love the uh, mythology. Uh, so I went, oh yeah, meet George Lucas, do some stuff, work, work work in the Star Wars universe. Awesome! I'll just do that in my spare time when I'm not doing Mad Max storyboards. So I literally came in, had a meeting with this, with Nick Gellard, who was this lovely um lovely English guy, and gave me a shot list, briefed me on this, um, briefed me on this fight. And I went away and storyboarded it. And that's what I, and I thought that would be the end of it. It was just a pitch to Lucas. And then, um, 
two days later, I got a call saying, um, George Lucas would like to come in and storyboard the next bit for him. And it was like, shit, okay, I'm in the middle of storyboarding Mad Max Fury Road. How the hell am I going to do this? So I literally had to ask George Miller, do you mind if I do you know, Fury Road during the day and Star Wars at night on weekends? I probably won't get much sleep for a few months, but is that okay? And George Miller said, um, yes, I just... I'd just like to learn how George um, Lucas makes his films. You were juggling George's. I was definitely. I was in. I was. I was. I was surrounded by George. Next, um, don't worry. Fury right. Road's not coming out for another fifteen years. <laughs> we got time. Yeah. Something <laughs> like that. Anyway, um, so yeah, essentially that's how I got the gig and came in and met met George Lucas and started doing storyboards. And what was really bizarre. Was I don't think this they'd already they were in pre-production. They'd moved to Sydney, everyone was there, sets were being built and stuff like that. I don't think they'd done any storyboarding. I don't think wow. there had been any I didn't see any storyboards in evidence at all until after I started. So well, there was were a lot of um, I think they were trying to do a lot of the the kind of uh video video style previs before mm. previs was really a thing you know chopping up bits and films doing you know um low low rent um uh camera setups and stuff like that and trying to take um um some sort of idea of how the scenes would go by using models and putting them in front of cameras right. and doing shots of them and stuff like that cutting it all together because that's what ben burt seemed to be doing he was editing the film and he had all these sequences he'd been piecing together but i don't think there was any storyboards which is which which i was completely surprised by i must have been i did not expect that so with that being said them starting storyboards relatively late in the process were there like teams of people and how did they divide the sequences and if you remember do you remember any sequences you worked on um well i know which sequences i worked on um in terms of how it worked I was the only storyboard artist in Australia doing Star Wars. There was no other storyboard artists there. And I was working directly with Lucas. Back at the ranch was, you know, the concept art department. Um, and they started doing storyboards after I started doing storyboards. But they were re-storyboarding the bits that I'd been doing. Um, I'm not quite sure whether that was because Lucas asked them to or because they thought, oh, shit, someone's storyboarding. We better do a, a better job which wouldn't have been hard. But anyway, um, so they were doing it. And I think there was a guy called Warren Drummond who was bought in for a brief period. And he did a little bit of storyboarding. And then I think he had to leave. But I saw storyboards by, um, uh, I think, Ian McCaig and a couple of other people. And then way down the track, um, when they went to post, and I think they were putting stuff together, I think they had... um, Another gentleman who I cannot remember the name of. I apologise to him in advance. He ended up being very big at Marvel, doing a lot of stuff for them. Uh, and he came and did a bunch of stuff during post. But other than that, it was literally you know, kind of half, half the stuff was a bit like, well, let's just make up as we go along. The sequences I tended to work on were things like um, I did the Obi-Wan Kenobi Django Fett fight on cool. the landing platform. That was the first bit I did, and that was the bit I did for um, Nick, um, Nick Gillard and then ended up 
reworking it later down the track. Then I worked on quite a bit of the stuff in the arena at the end of the film, uh, particularly, again, it seemed to be all Django Fett-centric. I did the whole stuff with Django Fett um, fighting with Mace Windu. Um, did a bit chunk of that, including all the stuff with the rake, things like that. A whole bunch of second unit style stuff of various stunts that could involve, you know, Jedi doing you know, combat stuff in the background. But um, Nick Gallard and um, Ben Burt were going to shoot. Um, but probably the bit that I really worked the most on was the asteroid chase. So the Django Fett being chased by Obi-Wan Kenobi during the through the asteroid, including cool. including that lovely um uh that lovely sonic mine bit which I was just um, gonna say. Which I will um partly take credit for. I didn't I won't take credit for the sound. Um uh, that was all Ben Burt, but uh I think that was one of my ideas which uh ended up ended up actually being really nice. I quite liked that was my favourite bit of the film. Not because I did it, it was just really effective one of those good moments so um but yeah that was that, and that was pretty much it you know i mean this is during the shoot and i was literally meeting lucas on saturday mornings having worked all worked all through the night um uh from sunday through to um friday working all night friday and then seeing lucas having had no sleep handing over the storyboards and then trying to listen to him while trying to stay awake while he briefed me, briefed me on the next bit. And then during the week, during the weekdays, going to Kennedy Miller Mitchell where we were doing Fury Road and drawing storyboards for George. And it was an interesting time because you know, I was averaging probably about two to three hours of sleep a night and I did that for about four months. It was entertaining. It's good. Which, I mean, speaking of Lucas, like what was – I mean, George Lucas is such a mythological – beast to us yeah so like what was what was he like in the flesh well as you already know he never he never seems to change his clothes he's always got the same wardrobe (laughs) um i think that's fairly 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 known and that's definitely true i could be politically correct and say it was fantastic and i loved working with him and it was great what i will say is I found him very remote. Um, sure. Mm. I actually, I really, I really, I mean, I was really excited to meet him, but he was so, he's such a reserved character. He's very, doesn't give very much away. Um, and as such, he's not, he doesn't, I mean, obviously, if you knew him well, he'd probably be um, much more outcoming, uh, outgoing. But to if me, you're Steven uh, Spielberg. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. But to me, he was kind of like, oh, okay. So today we're going to do a space chase. <laughs> that was about it. You know, he wouldn't give very much away. And then, you know, you'd just right. trying to get details out of him. And a couple of times I'd ask him questions and he'd kind of look at me a bit surprised, particularly when, you know, I'd say, I don't agree with that. Um, I don't think is that a great idea? And he'd just look at me, and it was just like it was like it didn't compute. He'd sit there and look at me, and then he'd just keep on talking. It was like someone's someone's just said no, and I don't know what that means. Error um, message seven oh seven. Yeah, so, something like that. But you know, um, it was it was interesting because he was so so remote and and seemingly so unemotional. 
and I was, you know, I hadn't been storyboarding. I hadn't been in films for more than four years, and I had still heaps to learn at the time. And so I sat there just going, oh, it's a bit of a wet blanket. Oh, you know, I'm not impressed with this. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't like this very much. But what I learned, and certainly with in retrospect, I've certainly learned that when I, I, I used to ask him questions like, why do you want to do that? Um, because I thought it was a ridiculous thing in film in a filmic sense. And he would also always answer the question in terms of backstories of these characters. Mm-hmm. He'd never say, Well, I want to do it because, you know, I really like this and I really like this sort of shot <laughs> and so that. He'd always say, Well, you know, you know, like I asked him a question, you know, why do why do battle droids have um detachable weapons? Isn't that ridiculous? You build weapon, you build battle droids. Shouldn't they have built-in weapons so that you can't disarm them? Right. And he'd be just going, "Well, you know." And I, and I asked him that because I thought it was a bad design choice. And he went, "Well, you know, the Free Trade Federation were real cheap, and they had all these droids that were on the assembly line. So instead of building real robots, what they did was they actually reconditioned the robots they had, reprogrammed to be weapon to be weapons, and then gave them guns. You know, and that's what they did. And then they got better later on." But that's what happened with those first battle droids. And he said, they just go, you didn't answer my question. That's a ridiculous thing. But in <laughs> retrospect, what I've realized is that it's all about backstory. Um, and it's all about storytelling. And in fact, he was completely bloody right. And I was this bloody naive, you know, idiot storyboard mm-hmm. artist who had no bloody clue what I was actually asking. And I was, I was being far too judgmental. Uh, and I should have given a hell of a lot more credit than I than I did at the time, because uh, he was he was very smartly sticking to story reasons why everything was happening, as mm. opposed to technically, you know, it should be this. It's like no story in story wise, it's this, and mm. it shows because then you watch something like the Star Wars um, sequels, you know, the, um, the Disney ones where it becomes more about the technical side of things as opposed to the backstory side of things. And then you get that weird non-mythological feeling to those films. They don't feel big. They feel strangely small and strangely, yeah, strangely ephemeral, whereas the uh, even, even the prequels um, have grown in terms of their appreciation over the years because there is this deep level of story to everything which makes it, exist you know i mean it's a testament to it that you know all these uh you know like the clone wars all these animated series um you know, so many things have come out of the world building that happened as a result of those films no it's because star wars people are crazy people and they love lore and that's why like every background character has their own like spin-off comic book fan fiction wikipedia sort of. page well, yeah exactly yeah, yeah if you've got the stories you might as well use them and the fact is that Lucas has already got the stories in his head. Yeah, it's like he's making uh, a that's, documentary. That's interesting. It's yeah. like he's making a documentary about a universe that he made up, which is why he feels so loyal to like all the details. He's like, well, we can't change mm. it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, in the storyboards, I guess by and large, and on this, are you just doing like keyframes, or it's like every, or is it more of like a shot list where they're like, we're gonna do Hell no. this shot? Uh, talk on that. It's just keyframes. No, 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 you go straight through. I, I, no, I was storyboarding for George Miller. George Miller does everything. And you mm-hmm. step through and you do multiple frames for each shot. You do the beginning, the end of a scene of a shot. 
you know, the entry point, the exit point, what happens in between. You try and map it all out so that everything flows. Um, and that was certainly what I did with Lucas too, because, you know, particularly with things like the um, the uh, asteroid chase that went to a previous team, you know, um, you know, again, early days in previous, but, you know, there was, uh, was it Dan Derenz and his team were doing um, previous. And previous is really bloody difficult to do unless you're really, really got a seriously good cinematic head. It's really hard to do without storyboards. And so storyboarding those sequences properly and showing how it flowed makes their job so much easier. And what was fascinating, I mean, again, my first experience with um, proper previews was actually seeing, what, three weeks after I finished the um, the uh, asteroid chase um storyboards is that they delivered the first cut of the previews for that sequence and it was almost um with the exception of cutting out one idea that was a uh, not a very good idea i think was i think it was one of ben burt's ideas uh smoke screen in space which doesn't make much sense um, um but other than that they faithfully executed every single shot and the only thing they got wrong was I'd slightly got the lensing wrong on one frame, which was a shot of a of the droid missile chasing Obi Wan Kenobi's um, starfighter, and um, and I'd drawn it so the droid missile was really close to camera, and you know the um, the spaceship was you know the starfighter was really small in the background, and you're travelling with this droid missile, and they misread it and thought, oh Jesus, that's a giant missile chasing a tiny spaceship, so they had this one shot of this enormous missile chasing a spaceship was about a tenth of the size. So other than that, though, it executed it seamlessly and it flowed beautifully. And a large part of that is because, you know, the storyboards stepped out how it was going to work and then they just took it and ran with it. But they had their beginning and end points and they knew how it was supposed to flow. So it totally makes sense that you do it that way. When it came to other sequences, yeah, it was always... It was, it was going to be chopped up and put into, as Lucas always does, you know, into cutting various various bits of action. Uh, it was always going to be done that way, but you tried to actually make it a seamless series of storyboards to tell the story in as much as a, as a, um, in a uh, smooth way as possible. Yeah, so you worked with Previs, I guess, close to its inception, kind of, or when it was really starting to get started. And uh, obviously you've had, a long career in films since then. So then like, has there been on your end, a change in your process in working with the medium at all, or is it just kind of simply it's, it's storytelling. It's what it is. Yeah, pretty much so. I mean, look, I mean, uh, other than the fact that, you know, when I was doing star Wars, I was working on paper, um, mm. and, you know, squeaky markers and, um, and pen and ink. And these days now it's all done computer. Um, but I'm doing, almost exact the same thing. I'm still drawing the same way as I used to. It's just that there's no paper and the eraser function's better. As to the actual way I storyboard, um, sometimes you get a little bit more iterative with your um, with the use of frames because um, what you're trying to do now is you're trying to make it so if it goes into an animatic or it goes into, into previews, you're trying to make it so that it visually flows so that when you cut from one frame to the next, there's still that flow of image, so it's not it doesn't jerk around and, and confuses everyone. Um, and of course, you don't use arrows anymore because everything's going to get moved. Um, so, 
you very rarely use um, use um, direction arrows and camera camera arrows and some of that anymore. So you're just doing the frames and then doing iterative framing in order to show what the move's going to be, which involves a little bit more work. So there is more work involved, um, but other than that, though, you know, it's it's not fundamentally different. I, I must admit, I'm I'm not very really good at picking up on new technologies like you know integrating 3D models into the work and stuff like that. I haven't done any of that. I just still do it all out of my head because I seem to have this um, um, ability, um, whether it's a blessing or a curse or something uh, something else, but I seem to have this ability to be able to think, um, think three-dimensionally so I can plot out how something works in my head pretty, pretty instinctively and I can generally draw things from multiple angles without too many problems. So I'm able to actually figure out how that move's going to look from various angles where there may be other people out there who struggle a little bit with that. So I've never really had the feeling that I need to learn those technologies, which probably means I'll probably make myself redundant very shortly and I'll probably never be able to get work in this industry again. Anyway, there you go. Sucks to be me if that's the case. Sucks to be you. So um, <laughs> you also... Uh... You were you. Have, it seems like you have a long-standing relationship with George Miller, and I was wondering, like, how you met him, and uh, it, particularly about your work on Mad Max Fury Road because you did it simultaneously with Star Wars, which is fucking crazy, you know? Yes, yes. There's a there's a story behind. There's a story for that as well. Um, let's just say uh, George Miller. Um, I'd done my first film, Dark City, um, and that had worked, gone reasonably well. George Miller was starting to ramp up early, early, early pre-production on Babe 2, Pick in the City. Um, and uh, George always tries to storyboard as much as he possibly could. And so he was looking for storyboard artists. Um, and at that stage, there wasn't that many storyboard artists in Australia who were actually actively working on live action. Um, I think of about four or five people, and most of them were busy doing other things. Uh, a lot of them tended to bugger off to the States because there wasn't that much high-budget film work in Australia being done at the time. Not many runaway productions from the States coming over to Australia, as a result of which there was not many storyboard artists around. So me being invented as a storyboard artist in 1996 meant that I suddenly became um, useful to many people rather rapidly, which was very lucky. You were one a commodity. You were one of five. Yeah, thereabouts. So we had a team of George. George had a team of four storyboard artists for the first bloody hell first seven eight months. We worked on Babe. Two. They wanted someone else to do it. There was a lovely lady who I uh, who was working on um on uh, Dark City called Jennifer Ya. Um, who was um, who's gone on to have a stellar career um, and, and directing things like Kung Fu Panda two and three and stuff like that. Oh my, um, cool! She she had a story she had a storyboarding background, but she was doing concept art on um, Dark City, and uh, but she'd come from Los Angeles, and they wore, and I think they were very people in Australia were very keen to keep her in Australia and try and keep keep her busy, and so she was asked to come over and meet with George to see if she'd come and like to do. Um, uh, babe 2 um, and uh, she asked me to go along uh, because uh, she was a bit nervous and she said can you come and you know, just be in the meeting which is a bit weird but anyway there you go um, so I turned up and they met her and 
uh, that came in down and talked to her in the foyer. And I was there too, sitting in another chair in the background. And uh, they talked to her for a bit and she went, no, sorry, I really have to go home. I've got to go and look after my, uh, have to go and look after my mother and stuff like that. But that guy over there, he storyboards, he was storyboarding uh, Dark City. And they went, oh, oh, him. Oh, oh, do you want to come and have a, can we have a look at your stuff? So they eventually um, decided that they didn't need Jennifer. They'd use me instead, which was interesting. But anyway, um, and that's how I essentially met George. Uh, and then I obviously did well enough that George then continued to use me. So, you know, went off and did some other stuff after Babe 2 and then got asked, come, got asked to come back and do Happy Feet. But um, why, what I thought I was coming to do, Happy Feet, was another talking bloody pig movie, talking animal movie, which was just going, God, I'm going to be the talking animal guy. Um uh, slightly got into a meeting with George where he went, oh, so you're coming to work on Mad Max. And to this day, I'm never, not quite sure whether I was actually legitimately called in to come and work on Mad Max or that it was Happy Feet 2, Happy Feet. And um, uh, and George just made a mistake. Um, I'm not quite sure how it worked. But anyway, ended up doing Fury Road instead. Sorry, I'm babbling this. I'm buggering this story up. I think I keep on saying the wrong films. No, this is all great. <laughs> Please keep anyway, talking. But, well, I'm, eventually, I'll make sense. Anyway, um, so yeah, um, and I've been more or less working with George ever since, um, even on things like Justice League Mortal, uh, which never, never went, never, never actually happened. Um, thankfully, because I think it would have been bloody awful. But um, you know, that was that was a film that shouldn't have happened because they were nowhere near ready to, ready to go into production because they were trying to outrun the um, writer's strike. They didn't have a finished script. They didn't have a properly fleshed out concept. And they were going to spend an enormous amount of money trying to fix it in post, as it were. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of glad, kind of glad it didn't happen. So you worked on Fury Road in 98 or 99? 99 to 2001. And then in 2009 as well, um, when it went to, into um, pre-production for the second time. Um, and then, yeah, wasn't, wasn't on shoot. And then, ironically, wasn't on the shoot when they actually did it. Were you seeing shots that you were like, oh, this is my work when you saw the final, oh, like the finished George, film? George freely, freely says uh, Fury Road is 80% storyboards. Um, cool. Right. You know, you have, yeah. You have to remember, you know, a lot of uh, quite a lot of storyboard artists because because it's a certain lack of appreciation for what they actually do in in filming. Um, certainly in terms of you know credit and stuff like that. A lot of storyboard artists tend to really hang on to shit. That's my shot. Um, whereas I'm much more of the opinion of the storyboards are a tool off which everything else hangs. Um, mm. You know even to a certain degree, script, because you, you really adapt the script massively, and particularly with something like Fury Road, where it was such a visual film as opposed to a um, a story with a complex plot. Oh, well, I should say a film with a complex plot. The storyboards were really the skeleton on which everything else was built. And so what was nice was not just seeing, you know, recognising a, a shot and going, oh, it's my shot, but actually going, fuck, that sequence... That sequence is 
kind of close to what we storyboarded and really bloody works. And that's that's what's exciting. That's what's exciting to me is seeing seeing uh, proof that you know how you think about the storytelling actually comes together and actually cinematically works. And um, Fury Road certainly was an example of that. You know, I mean, I've worked on a fair few films in my life, and this is this that'd be the one I'd be proudest of. As you should, anyway. because Fury Road is like pretty fucking amazeballs, I think that's is the go, clinical that, term. That's a good way to put it. Uh, I, and Okay, so while we're on the Fury Road talk and the George Miller talk, I know we can't talk it all or anything much, but it is on your IMDb page. Um, and curr- currently Furiosa is in pre-production. Is. How is that? <laughs> oh. Whoa! Um, it's going well. Storyboarding, oh. as we, uh, storyboarding as we speak. Um, that was they were also upside down and very blurred, so you won't be to um, won't be to actually. Take oh yeah, this is a, this that. is an audio medium. So just for yeah, the no. listeners at home, he flashed us like a quick glimpse of, of uh, something that might have been furious. The story was it might not have been. Um, yes. Anyway, no, it's going it's going well. I mean, we're cracking on. I think there's I think it's another six months or so before it starts shooting, um, and there's a chunk of work done. George is currently finishing work on um, uh, his little his little side project, 3,000 Years of Longing, which um, he shot last uh, last year um, and the beginning of this year, and that's going on pretty well. And then, and then he's on to Furiosa properly, but it's, it's going to be a pretty ambitious project. I mean, scope, the scope is massive. I mean, Fury Road's Fury Road's a chase, and it's a amazing, amazing chase, and you know, very you know, super involved and super complex, and at the same time, super simple. Um, Furiosa is a very different beast. Um, George never, ne- George never does the same film twice. Let's put it that way, and he never works the same way twice. So it's uh, it's always different every time. So this might be a difficult metric, but like h- how many storyboards would you say you t- typically complete in like one day? Oh God. Um, that is the $10,000 million question. I'm sure that's what every producer is asking themselves. Like how many can we force out of the sky? No, no, no. Storyboard, no, no the producers are saying how many storyboards is he going to do um, yeah. as opposed to, <laughs> yeah. How much, how many storyboards do I need him to do? Right. He's going to do that many. Um, as opposed to, uh, yeah, how many can he do? Um, and are, uh, sorry, another side question: Are they all in black and are they all in color, or is black and white a thing? No, generally they're in black and white because um, if you do color, then you just slow yourself down massively. Yeah, colors when yeah. you've got a little bit of time, then you start doing it. Um, uh, so generally they're in black and white, but they are generally fully rendered. You know, inked, toned, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. As long as they're clean and clear, and you can see what they are. A storyboard's an effective tool. Um, you don't want them to be. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Well, this is where I'm going to fall flat in my face and can't think of a word, which happens with regularity. I think it's senility coming on. Um, if they're ambiguous in any way, then the uh, storyboards don't do their job. You need them to be unambiguous. Um, so it's whatever you can do to make that the case. And yeah, I've come up. I come from a comic book background, so I try and draw things very reasonably tightly, but immediately recognizable and very clear what they are. 
as to the question of how many storyboards I do a day, it can vary anything between five and 80. Um, Whoa. Five, five is a really, 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 oh God, you've asked me to do shots with um, 300,000 penguins in it. Thanks, George. All right, I can do <laughs> five of those a day. Um, and I spent six months drawing storyboards of, you know, 300,000 goddamn penguins in the background of shots. Um, but, um, the most I've ever done, I think most I've ever done was, I can either say per day, I've done 92 frames in a day and they were penciled and pen, penned and inked. Um, and that was on Red Planet and I'll never do that again because that nearly killed me. Generally, the accepted wisdom is you do somewhere between 20 to 25. Um, mm. As I get older, I slow down a bit, so I'm not quite doing that at the present moment, but I'm trying very hard to get that amount done. But what you're also trying to do, and this is the thing about storyboards, is they're iterative, you know? So it's all very well to draw a whole bunch of storyboards, but if they're not useful then you end up going going away and drawing them again because you didn't think about it properly. You're just trying to get a certain number of frames done a day. It doesn't mean that that's effective and efficient. Mm -hmm. If you take the time to think about it and really get into the mindset of what the director actually wants, if the director has told you what they want, which is another story um, and another another subject for another time, um, then if you can think about that and make it truly useful to them, then that's a whole bunch more effective. So I tend not to, um, with George Miller, for instance, I'll tend to storyboard everything twice. But what I'll do is I'll do incredibly roughs, incredible, incredibly bad roughs, which he can recognize. And then he'll tell me, no, no, I want you to do this and this and this and this. And then I go away and I storyboard it properly. I finish and clean it all up. And I give it back to him. And he generally tends to make absolutely no changes after that. And that's, seems to be a much more efficient way of doing things. A lot of films now, storyboard artists don't actually have conversations with the director about what they want. I mean, uh, I've done a, I've done about um, four Marvel projects now, and and a lot of those cases, the storyboarding is done concurrently with everything else in pre-production, and they're writing and they're doing a whole bunch of other stuff as well and the director is being pulled in a thousand different directions at once and he doesn't have time or she doesn't have time to sit down with you and work with you iteratively on all this sort of stuff. So you tend to get given chunks and you go away and you execute it and then hope like hell that they like it. Most of the times that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, famously, I worked on a sequence for three months for Black Panther um, and then I, uh, and then uh, Captain America's Civil War came out, which introduced the character. And I watched it and I went and rang up the producer um, or sent him an email and said, um, yeah, I've done this sequence that I was just about to hand off for a Black Panther and I've just watched Civil War and I've just discovered that the Black Panther is bulletproof. And Ooh. this is a sequence all about him trying to avoid being shot by people because I thought he wasn't bulletproof. So I'd have to throw Jesus. this whole sequence out and start again. That's I mean, the most, kind of people thing where... aren't, most people aren't bulletproof. It was a fair assumption tends to be i mean yeah that's a that's a that's a fairly extreme uh, extreme example of um a lack of 
communication. communication. But, you know, it's also understandable. I mean, to a certain degree, they're juggling so much, so much, and there are certain things that they take for granted because they know these characters so well, but they don't think that you might not know it. Right. So, and, you know, again, with things like the Marvel films, I'm over in Australia and they're over in LA, and so our back and forth is limited by, you know, time and time and distance. So I am a huge, huge, this is a big pivot, but I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. And you worked on Mission Impossible 2. I don't know how long mm. you worked on it for, or Six if you months. ever got to meet the guy, but... I did. Whoa! So, I did. yeah. In fact, I got, I got his, uh, I can see that right now, I got his nose right there on my chest. Um, uh, under what circumstances? Clavicle <laughs> height, because he's incredibly short. And he moves at speed. Um, and he came charging around a corner because I think he had his people with him and he was going from set to set. And um, I think he was in full producer mode and he came charging around this corner. I was walking the way and he just walked straight into me and his nose hit me right there. Um, and uh, and, of and you still you know, have the runs... indent. Yeah, to this day. Um, boy, okay. That nose. Anyway, um, but uh, I had a couple of a couple of uh, meetings uh, meetings where he uh, he was part of it and he seemed, you know he he's a very focused individual but he generally seemed to have a very he seemed to have a very good idea of what he had a very clear idea of what he wanted um and had a very good cinematic head so he was very clear about what he wanted from a cinematic perspective um but you know, he tended he, he knew everyone, even even if he didn't know you personally, he knew what you did and he had a very good understanding of what everyone did and I think he appreciated that. And he put in the time, you know. He he worked bloody hard. And on you know, for all the other, you know, Hollywood insanity and stuff like that, I'll give him absolute credit for the fact that he really wanted the best for the films he was he was doing you know and mm -hmm. particularly on you know mission impossible films which obviously he you know he's the producer um you know he clearly wants the best for the film but you know he he worked bloody hard to do it so it was, did uh, you did you talk a lot with john woo we'd have lunch with john woo every day the story about alice there was two of us on um on the uh shoot uh a guy called robbie konzing and uh and i and we'd um john John didn't like the catering on the film, so every lunchtime he would get um, he would get food ordered in from this really lovely Chinese restaurant in uh, the Rocks in the Sydney CBD called the Imperial Peking, which I believe a cousin of his worked at, was a manager or something like that. So he'd get these bloody Chinese banquets um, bought into um, the studio every single goddamn day, and because the storyboard artist worked for him we'd get asked to come and then he'd sit there and he'd sit on one side of the table and eat his noodles and all that sort of stuff and all this bloody fantastic food and just go, oh, look at you two getting fat and lazy. Oh, <laughs> eat, eat. And, uh, and uh, it, was, it was, he was fun. He didn't give, he, he didn't give much away, but uh, he liked his food. Didn't like Tom Cruise though. Whoa! Ooh. <laughs> they 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 seem they seem they seem to um yeah he 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 wanted to do his film and he didn't want Tom Cruise telling him what he wanted and so I think they tried to uh, 
tried to, he tried to avoid Tom Cruise whenever possible. So wow. Uh, very rarely when I when I was with uh, when I was around John, I'd very rarely see Tom. And John used to hide from Tom between takes because he didn't want to have he didn't want to have to talk to him. So he'd go and find wow. some flat somewhere and he'd sit on a chair because he always used to wear these very recognisable shoes. So he'd sit on a chair on a chair with his feet up because Tom Cruise would go around looking under everything to try and see if he could see John's shoes so he could find him and talk to him. So so it was rather entertaining. Um, that was a very dysfunctional film. And it shows a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the best it wasn't the best mission impossible by a long way. They, they found but anyway, the there you go. Yeah. Anyway. So you mentioned earlier that you have a child who is in the upcoming Thor movie, and also you worked on the upcoming Thor movie. So I did. speak on that. Mm, um, Thor Love and Thunder. Yes. Thor Love and Thunder. Just spent eighteen months working on it. Um it kept me it kept me employed months. through yeah, kept me employed through COVID. Um, Whoa! And I was I was very lucky. They uh, when they shut down production, they kept me on, and so I, I don't think there was any other storyboard artist kept on. I'm not sure. And, oh wow! Uh, it's, you, you just don't know. Um, you just find out whether what other people were on the film later down the track when you see the uh, film in the cinemas. But um, as far as I know, I was the only storyboard artist on after they shut down, and I was kept on almost the whole way through shoot and that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun i've got to say um it was a uh it's insane really quite insane and I, i've never done it before but i uh, asked uh, asked the producer whether there was any opening at all for a um for because i knew there was some roles for uh, a couple of kids um background roles you know extras roles mm. um but you know, uh, involved in involved in some um, action scenes and stuff like that. And I asked uh, asked the producer whether there was any opening for um, um, any need for um, kids and whether my child could be put into the mix. And to their absolute bloody credit, you know, they remembered it. And four months later, um, when those sequences came up, I got asked whether my child was available to come in for these um, things. So she got to rank, rank, uh, hang around with Hemsey. And uh, wow, uh, Hemsey, Hemsey, her mate, and uh, and uh, and um, there was a whole bunch of other kids um, as well, and they all got to ring around with Hemsey and do action sequences and have a great fun. You're on a Hemsey name basis. Oh, Hemsey, Hemsey, me mate. Yeah. So, <laughs> and God, he is a big, big, big man. His uh, his upper arms are bigger than my thighs. It's terrifying. And and when he puts a Thor suit on, Jesus Christ, he's tall. So yeah, and of course now I'm on Bloody Furiosa, and he's in that as well. So I'm just following oh. Hemsey around. Or no, no, actually, no, you're not. He's following me around. So there you go. <laughs> uh, did you get like how? What's Taika Waititi like? Like, is he a cool little dude? Uh, Taika is quite tall. He's certainly not little. Is he a cool big dude? He's a tall dude. Um, he is cool. He's mercurial. He's definitely one of those guy who guys who's super smart and gets something about five minutes before everybody else. Mm. And so you know, yeah, like um, I would have to do um, video video pitches where um, they would all be over in the states, you know, all the department heads and stuff like that, and all scattered around the world, all on video feed, and I'd have to show them my storyboards and run through 
the sequence and what I thought it should be and this and the other. And Taika would always be on his phone in every single every single one. And I've got a complex of it. I'm thinking, he's, he hates everything I'm doing. He just he's not looking at what I'm doing. He's just on his phone. And and I'm sitting there just going shit. And so I sent the producer um, um, uh, an email and just said, Look, I'm, I'm really worried. I think Tyker hates me, hates my stuff. He's just he's just not saying it. And he went, Oh, what do you, why do you, why are you saying that? I said, Well, he's on he's he's always on he's always on his phone. Um, I don't know what he's doing, Twitter or he's googling stuff or whatever. He went, Fuck no. He's sitting there texting me about the stuff you've done and saying, great, this is going to be for this. This could be for this. That's going to be really good. I love this. We're not going to do that. But this, 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 and, and they're having this full-on conversation and he's just doing it while he's listening to me about the next bit. And he would guess it. Everyone else is sitting there just trying to hang on, just going, right, okay, yeah, and what does this mean? He's already got there and he's moved on to the next thing and he's got to where you're going to before you get there. So he's a wow. smart, smart, smart cookie. And he's definitely able to compartmentalize. So he can compartmentalize. He can do multiple things at once. So he's a very, very interesting chap. Um, but he's also an actor. So there's always a performance to it as well. So um, it's, uh, it, can be a, it can be slightly full on from time to time. But anyway, it was, it was, uh, it was fun working with him, though. I don't know if he'll ever ask me to work with him again, but, you know, did 18 months with him. It was good fun. Parth, would you say it's time? I think I think the Big Kahuna Time section of this podcast has, has come. arrived. Um, dun, 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 dun. It's time for the Big Kahuna final question, and that is, what what is the last great film you watched? And it can be a rewatch or a first viewing. That's a terrible question. Because, you know, that's so subjective. What was the last really great film I watched? Is that in terms of... Something that left a mark. Ooh, shit. Um, that is a good question and a terrible question at the same time. I could go through a whole raft of films. The ridiculous thing about working in the entertainment industry is because I'm so bloody busy storyboarding, I don't get time to watch films very often. So the number of films I've got to watch recently have been pitifully small and i tend to actually end up watching a whole bunch of things that my child's able to watch so we've been going through a we've been going through a 1980s um um binge with it well semi-binge with her um and i'm just learning to reappreciate how bad a lot of them are and how inappropriate a whole bunch of them are but you know what i've got to say out of the films that i've actually watched with her over the last few months of these uh, of this eighties binge, um, we revisited the uh, the Back to the Future trilogy. Wow, mm, and, classic! And I've got to say, Back to the Future one, god damn, that's a tight film. It's uh, per- it's like perfect. Like it's a perfect screenplay. It's, it is. Yeah. It's not just a perfect screenplay. It's just everything about it is so beautifully um, intertwined. Timed. Intertwined, but it's not just the story, it's all those little bits and pieces that they added in. You know, I mean, you know, the original original idea of you know, uh, charging the DeLorean with the energy from a from an atomic explosion, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, because of budgetary reasons, they changed it into a lightning strike. And you can't imagine how that film would work 
with anything but that lightning no. strike because it's so beautifully executed. And I'm so I've got to say, you know, Back to the Future One and to a certain degree, Back to the Future Two um, were films that I really, really did enjoy. Um, and my child, my child, you know, hey, look, put an eight-year-old in front of a film. If they watch it, then they like it as yeah. opposed to getting up and starting to dance halfway through the film and just going, all right, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to get on my iPad or whatever. And she watched Back to the Future 1 and 2. You know, she didn't move. What's your hot take on Back to the Future 3, just while we're here? Well, it's the, it's the, it's the close of a trilogy. It does feel like it wasn't as fully baked mm. as the first one. And the second one was pretty good but it felt like you know it felt like you know it was it was one it just needed a little bit more time in the oven um a bit like i'd say about you know the the star wars prequels for instance always feels like um, phantom menace was one rewrite off actually being a really good film um mm. and you know the revenge of the sith was two rewrites off being a great film and attack of the clones unfortunately was about three rewrites off being a good film um you know uh, and to a certain degree, you'd say the same thing about the Back to the Future 3. I felt felt like it just needed just that little bit more time on the album. But still pretty bloody tight. But it felt like it was more overtly overtly retreading moments from the first, particularly the first yeah. film, um, but not as assuredly. It's funny that you bring up Back to the Future because I was thinking about this earlier in the interview that you sleeping for two hours a night and going from uh, George Miller to George Lucas is like Michael J. Fox going from Family Ties to Back to the Future like in the same day and he did that for months and um, I don't know how he did it. I don't That's know insane. how you, I don't know how you slept for two hours a night for months. I've got to. Oh, I'll just tell you one more story then, because um, I'm just trying to make this podcast last longer than it needs to, and I'm going to bore your audience. But Please. Um, uh, literally, almost at the end of my time on on uh, Attack of the Clones, I mean, I think it was the week before I finished, and I, you know, uh, four months, two or three hours of sleep a night, um, you know, working insanely stupid hours, and uh, Saturdays. I'd see Lucas at 10 o'clock in the morning at uh, up on the edit suite at stage five. I'd show him the boards. He'd brief me on what he wanted or not brief me as the case may be, depending on, depending on how we, and what ideas he had at the time. And then I'd go out having written as many notes as I possibly could. I'd go out and I would try and go and see a film because that was the only way I could actually power down so I could actually sleep that night so they can get back up on Sunday and start work again. And so, and because I was wrecked on a Saturday. And so the last, the weeks, last, second last weekend, and I came out and I was walking along towards the cinema. Uh, there's a cinema on the Fox, uh, Fox Studio Australia lot. Um, I was walking towards the cinema and I heard this American voice going, hello, 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 God damn it. And I turned around and there was this gentleman, older gentleman, beard, um, just really you know, quite a he was, he, was put, he, was, he was probably in his 70s, um, wearing this really ostentatiously bright Hawaiian shirt and the biggest goddamn satellite phone I'd ever seen in my life. This is, you know, in the days, this is 2000, this is the days before bloody iPhones. And he had this, um, you know, everyone had little Nokias and Motorola's. 
And he had this phone that was like, you know, you know about a foot long, but then it had this antenna on it that was about, um, well, it was bigger than the actual phone itself. Um, and I just looked at it and I hadn't had any sleep and I just felt I was compulsed. And I had this compulsion to sit down there to him and talk to him about his phone. So <laughs> I sat down next to him and I just went, and he was going, and he looked at me and he went, hi. I went, hi. That's an enormous phone. Um, it's just blah, 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 blah. And I just blathered him for about 10 minutes about the phone. And then I went, oh, look, anyway, look, I'm already sorry. I haven't had any sleep, you know, working on a film here. And, you know, I haven't slept for a while, so I apologize. I've probably probably confused you utterly. I'm quite sure I have, in fact. So I'm just going to leave you. Thanks very much. Um, yeah. Forgot to introduce myself. I'm really crap at it. And as I wander off, he got me. Went okay, yeah, right. And then he got on the phone again. And he pressed the button. Oh, 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 oh! Can you hear me? Good. What? Oh no, it's Francis. Francis Ford Coppola. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, Holy shit. Fuck. So I walked away, just going. I just talked to the man who did Apocalypse Now and the Godfather films and all those other. Oh my god. Oh my god. And then Rick McCallum rode past the producer on a um golf cart and Rick McCallum's the world's most dangerous driver on a golf cart so he skidded straight past me came to a slamming halt he went Sexton great to see you great to see you man Francis Ford Cabula's in town he's coming to do Centropolis he wants to do it here we're going to get you with him you're going to storyboard it we're going to keep you in the family it's going to be fucking great and I went Rick I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> and it didn't and it didn't <laughs> So, did you know at the time what Francis Ford Coppola looked like, and you were just so sleep deprived that you didn't connect the dots? I was so goddamn tired. I had not, it didn't even. Oh my god! It didn't even go off in my head that I was talking to Francis Ford Coppola. I just you had I was your eye on the, the prize phone. of his. I was looking at the phone. phone. Oh, phone. <laughs> big phone. <laughs> yeah, it was um, yeah one of those one of those moments you just go oh if I only take that one back, please God. Jeez. Anyway, so, wait, wait, so one last question. So do you think Francis <laughs> Ford, like, because you not getting the job is obviously a great end of the story, because it makes it seem like Francis Ford Coppola was like, fuck the phone guy. But do you think he actually was like, no, the phone guy can't work on my movie? No, I don't think, I, 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 who knows? I don't know. Who yeah, knows? yeah, it just makes well, a good end of the story, though. My phone. Fuck no. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't work with that guy. Um, no, well, actually, to be to be honest, to be honest, the Centropolis film that he was going to shoot didn't happen. I oh. think I think he might be doing it now, um, or he's, I think I think they're talking about doing it now. Um, there's wow. certainly been talk about it, but that's 21 years later. Maybe I should give him a ring. Yeah, I, hey Francis, I'm the phone guy. Are you look ready? How for small me to my phone is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, now that now now the technology has advanced and phones have gotten a lot smaller, I think our professional relationship can really take off. I absolutely yeah. It's not it's not te- technologically inhibited anymore. Um, mm, yeah. Anyway, there you go. So, new beauty. I think that's kind of a good way to end the episode, Parth. No, that I think that was an ex. I'm like still a little bit in shock. At the reveal of Francis Ford Coppola being the person with the phone, <laughs> but yes, that that is a great place to end this interview. It's all um, the telling. There you go. Yeah, uh, I guess just thank you so much, uh, Mark Sexton, for talking with us. Thank you for asking me. He's the storyboard artist behind again 
Babe, Mission Impossible 2, Mad Max Fury Road, and our movie for today, Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Again, thank you so much. This is a great interview. Uh, My pleasure. Well, uh, make sure to point out uh, where your daughter is when the Thor 4 comes out. Thor 4. Thor 4? Yes, look for a redhead. Um, Yeah. Anyway, Redhead there's, way there's, in the background, um, low to the ground. Oh, there's a couple of shots. She might be uh, fairly front and center. I don't know. We'll see. Oh. We'll see. Oh, cool. So it just just depends on whether they cut around her because um, there was some there was some there was a, a bit a bit of fighting these these kids were supposed to do, and she wasn't very good at that. So, all right. Well, we'll keep the listeners in suspense. Will she be in it? Will she not? Oh, yeah, we'll see how we go. Yeah, I mean, who knows? You can never tell with a Marvel film. Um, they the, so much stuff gets completely recontextualized uh, to support the story, and you, you sit there and just go, "But I storyboarded that bit, and it worked, over, and it was this, and now it's over there, and it works totally differently." But you know, so we'll see how they go. They know they do know what they're doing at the Marvel with Marvel Studios. They actually really make some very clever people there. Did you like Eternals? I did. Yeah, I saw it on Saturday. And you, Trent, did you watch it? I'm pointing at you. I have not seen Eternals yet. I can't speak on it. I defer all opinions to Parth. Oh, well, there you go. Well, yeah, I, I, I actually, the more I think about it, the more I appreciate what they did. And I have a sneaky suspicion if I watch it on a second viewing, I'm going to like it even more. Very cool. All right, well... That is Craft Services, Mark Sexton, signing out. Signing out. Welcome back. Uh, thank you again to Mark Sexton, our uh, wonderful guest. Um, I really enjoyed that interview. Did you? I had a great time. I think, as we were alluding, the Francis Ford Coppola story, stuff of the ages. Hmm? Yeah, um, that's wild. Meeting cele- uh, meeting celebrities and more particularly meeting directors is like what I'm here to talk about. Like, I, um, I don't care if they're terrible people or what, but people who make... This is a fun fact. Trent loves Kevin Spacey. Oh, it's actually funny you bring that up because I don't, I don't condone rape in any of its. Trent, forms. you were you were telling me just yesterday that we'll 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 end this bit. We'll end this bit for fear that Trent's mother listens to this episode and thinks that Trent was saying this. This is I'm gaslighting Trent right now. Parth, I can't even watch Seven anymore. Don't do this. That's not you say this with the Seven poster behind you. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. Well, what's next week? Revenge of the Sith? Oh, the conclusion of Prequel no, Winter? No, no, no. Next week, we discuss Attack of the Clones. Oh, sure. And you, I think we're going to have a guest on. Like, I can almost uh, guarantee maybe. it. Maybe we have some interesting things planned. Who knows? Maybe. It's going to be a return guest. Maybe. And then, yeah, and then Revenge of the Sith comes after mm-hmm. for the interview. We have assistant camera um, Matt Toll. Yeah. He's very cool. That and. Cool. Maybe for the discussion we'll have a wee little crossover, yeah? Um, yeah. Um, it's funny you did a British accent because there might be a little, and there might be a, 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 li- a little crossover. A little ethnic flair, you know what I'm saying? 
as in like two podcasts colliding at once. Yeah. Like we can't guarantee anything. We don't want to jinx it. We think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh I w- maybe if there's a scheduling disaster, if uh the Mayans were right and you know, December 21st rolls around and the earth crumbles, um then we probably won't be able to do the episode. No, no, no. But like unless that happens, I think we're like in pretty good shape. I think so too. I should probably get around to scheduling that episode, shouldn't I? Yeah. All right. Well, we should probably get off um, the air so you can schedule. All you right? want us to get off? <laughs> it's a masturbation <laughs> joke. <laughs> I thought, I was like, is this from a movie that I don't know? And I was like, I'm too tired to follow up. So I'm just going to let it, I'm just going to let it sit. All right, uh, go follow our social media. Go, go, yeah, you know the fucking spiel. Just just do nice things for us. Say nice things. Yeah, like support us. Like give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Like be our friend. Like um, give us a compliment. Like whether it be about the show or just that Parth's handsome, which is true. Thank you. He is. Yeah. Tell me I'm handsome. Tell Trent I'm handsome. And t- tell Trent that he has a nice voice. Um because that doesn't have to do with his, with his physical appearance, and that would be ah, a good way to sidestep the fact that I'm ugly. Ah, Trent's a little, Trent's my little cutie. No, no. Ah, madness, as you know, is like gravity. Anyways, I just, I don't know. All right, we're All gone. We're done. Yeah. It's over. It's over. Bye. Done. Fuck Part- Team Deacons. <laughs> Roger Deacons is listening to this, and he's like, "Poth, why would you say that?" <laughs> Wait, maybe we're gonna have. Wait, he's also British. Maybe we're having maybe... him on the show. Wait, crossover. Maybe they finally followed up via email, and they were like, "Dearest Barth and Trent, we have heard about your media campaign, and uh, we're, we've started to pay attention." Well, we're not ready to divulge, but um, until then, fuck Team Deacons. Good night and good luck. Yeah. <laughs> What is good night and good luck from?